0: hello everybody welcome to guys five movies this is one of your co-hosts chris gasper this is frank Pelican. tonight you are listening to episode 133 which is the top five films of 2001 and this will be our last episode of the year 2021 uh i wanted to get some house cleaning administrative stuff out of the way early uh both in terms of one we have gained Seemingly a lot of new listeners uh, testing out some of our episodes over the past two weeks or so, and uh, hopefully we've converted some of you and you'll be listening more regularly from now on, so welcome if that's the case. Um, And I wanted to kind of give a little bit of a preview of what's coming up in 2022 uh, before we get into tonight's list. So first, uh, I wanted to go ahead and shout out our sister podcast podcast. And that is the best 30 minutes podcast. Frank and I do that along with our longtime friends, Orion Wellmaker of the YouTube channel Battletoad Overload, um, where he beats Battletoads on as many CRTs as possible. So please give him a look. And then um, our other longtime friend, Mike Bledsoe. Uh That podcast focuses on... Kind of, I, what do we, we call it, I called it a nostalgia cast for a long time, but it's, um, we, we kind of document typical human experiences based on our specific memories, um, you know, our connection to each other through time, like, so it, it's acting as some sort of like time capsule of a specific time period um, with specific personalities. We have a wide range of topics that we've covered so far, anything from what it's uh first nes memories was our first episode we've covered inappropriate Inappropriate vomiting yeah Yeah, that's the one that always sticks out to me inappropriate vomiting um but we did a christmas christmas present themed episode that just dropped last week so please go ahead and, and give us um you know give us a look over on that podcast it is on a separate feed from two guys five movies and uh we try to keep that podcast to 30 minutes we failed a couple times with that particularly Mm. our most notable failure is the top five each of our top five albums of all time which ended up running about two hours um but we're still learning with that podcast um it's on available on all the major podcasting platforms all podcatcher apps you want to make sure to search specifically Uh, the best 30 minutes when you're searching it because it seems like the article the is important in that search right now. Um, And then it looks like our next episode, as we were discussing it today, is going to be talking about the, at least for the Delmarva area, I suppose, the blizzard of 1996 is the next episode that we're going to be talking about on uh, that. So, uh, the other thing I wanted to go ahead and highlight specifically for us in Two Guys, Five Movies is next week, uh, next Tuesday, we will be starting our new supplemental podcast. We have done for roughly the past two years, the Quick Cage, which now all of those episodes are available. Episodes 1 through 91 are all available, and that's where Frank watched every single Nicolas Cage movie and reviewed uh, and critiqued them. And now uh, we are moving on to the spin chagrin um, is the name of the supplemental podcast. that will be coming out every Tuesday with us. So Frank, do you want to go ahead and explain what the spin chagrin is? Because I, I can't do it properly. So imagine the showcase showdown and prices right where they
1: spin the wheel and you're hoping to get, you know, a dollar because closest to a dollar wins. The spin chagrin is similar, except there's no dollar. Everything's just a penny. And it's all movies. It's a vague description of what might be a movie. And then I have to take that vague description or adjective or whatever, and find a movie I've never seen, watch it, and then review it on the next week's episode. So when we spun last week, the movie, the topic came up of hackers. So I had to find a movie about hacking Mm -hmm. and watch it and review it next week and it was tough to find a movie i had not seen about hacking so um picked a real winner so
0: that'll be enjoyable to talk about yes and all of those frank came up with a number of topics for himself and then uh Me and Orion and Bletso from the other podcast, all uh, in a group thread, determined other topics for Frank. So we have roughly in a 52-week period, we have, I think, 63 topics, and uh, some of those are going to be really funny, Frank, Um, when we get to them. Not for you, necessarily, but...
1: I mean, you know, whatever. I enjoy watching bad movies for the most part, so...
0: Well, that's good, because you're going to watch a lot of them. Yeah, Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I'm down.
0: But there, there is a there there's an the element not only of chance in this though, but there's also an element of wit on your part, I think, to eventually try to find a movie that can fit the description and find something good in right. there, potentially. Gotta so, try and circumvent the rules. Right. I can something. Uh, it could, so they could be like dimes rather than pennies sometimes, maybe.
1: Sure. It might, you might even get a dollar in there every once in a yeah, while. Yeah, maybe. For the most part, I'm probably just going back to my um, back to the audience afterwards every <laughs> single week.
0: <laughs> the right. analogy, <laughs> and then um, lastly, on the primary podcast here, we have a uh, whole slew of new top five lists. We are not slowing down after. You know, three years. Right? In, in fact, I think we're doubling down. So the first major thing that we're doing is, uh, as we have done with '80s horror, B horror movies, and then the 1990s horrors lists from previous years. Next year, we will be covering every year of the 1970s in terms of horror. So starting in the end of January, we will be covering the year 1970, February 1971, and so on. <clears throat> Frank, you want to i didn't ask you to do this but you want to give them like a little like you know a uh, uh, preview of like what 70s horror kind of like means to you and like why we're specifically doing 70s horror uh, there's a real interesting
1: like shift in 70s horror away from the more traditional like gothic i don't know bodice ripping horror of like the 60s and 50s um where it becomes more visceral in a lot of ways so there's a lot more horror movies that are based on real or semi-real um you know fictionalized events um it's also just got the sensibility of like the 70s in general which is that really like rough grain um film stock um it makes things feel dirtier and more immediate so there's a lot of stuff in the 70s that's just um super influential i think into modern horror you know in terms of like the creation of a couple different genres including like slasher <laughs> um and also just you have a lot of directors who would become mainstays you know not even in just horror but like outside of horror and like mainstream filmmaking who are kind of cutting their teeth in horror in the 70s and then sort of at the other end of that it's the end of a career of a couple of uh seminal directors or kind of maybe like the twilight of their career so you get this wide variety of different movies all different kinds of topics and a lot of really classic films in the 70s so it's going to be fun to talk about them and some stuff that's really great that we don't even we don't have on list because we either, either talked about it before or I kind of feel like there's not much else to say about it um, other than what we've already said. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a yeah. solid 50 movies.
0: Yeah. I mean, having um, kind of started watching some of those movies in those early years. Uh, yeah. No, definitely like a wide variety in terms of like what you were talking about that shift, it seems. And um, probably, I guess we'll have a lot of, a lot of foreign directors probably on those lists too. Right
1: yeah and definitely because there's when we did the top 5 of the 70s which was in hindsight a really stupid list to do um we touched on some foreign directors but there's a lot of other like more minor foreign directors and directors who became more influential later in their careers that you know had their starts in the 70s so you could right. talk about some of their early works and i don't know it's um it's it's a good list i'm excited to yeah. to watch all those movies again and talk about them
0: Nice. All right. So we'll be covering one of those a month. Uh, it'll be the last episode of every single month. And then we will be doing our traditional top five lists uh, throughout the rest of the year. So in January, I can go ahead and tell you that we are starting the year by covering, which is kind of becoming a tradition, we're covering the top five films of Michelangelo Antonioni. Uh, we, in previous years, we had last year was Luis Buñuel that we covered, the year before that was Ingmar Bergman. And we've also covered the very beginning of the podcast. Episode two was David Lynch and somewhere in there, I think for an October, I think we covered David Cronenberg and those are the directors mm-hmm. we've covered so far. So and we only Tarantino, do, know, but more yeah, of a retrospective, more than of a retrospective than a top five, but yeah. Um, yeah. We don't do this often with directors necessarily. So these are usually kind of like major episodes to focus on like one uh, prominent director. And then the other episode of that month will be the top five films by actors turned directors. And then in February, we'll be covering the top five black comedy films. And then we will be covering the top five comedies in the 1990s. So Frank is getting all the comedy out in one month for probably the past two years. So (laughs) because Frank doesn't do comedy that. That much. So, you know what? I actually are, look forward so to the sh- spin chagrin more than these comedy episodes. But <laughs> uh, there's some good movies on your comedy list that we've talked it's about. It's true. Some things make me laugh. Yeah. um All right. So, and then later in the year, towards the middle of the year, we do have a special episode, something different planned for the 100th and 150th episode of the podcast, uh, which we'll talk about more later in the year. So, but I'm really interested in that idea. So, as always, we're still interested in, feedback, in the feedback and any ideas you have for the podcast. So, you can follow us through Facebook, Twitter, which now I'm posting to more regularly in terms of just the podcast episode updates, Instagram. Uh, you can also contact us through email, of course, at, at two guys five movies at gmail.com. That's the numbers two and five, two guys five movies at gmail.com. All right. You ready to get into this list, Frank? Let's do it. All right. So, 2001 we've covered 71 81 91 and now 2001 i think this is the most radical leap out of 10 years to me as i think on those lists yeah i don't disagree
1: of like this is this is my favorite list out of all four that we did
0: interesting yeah the one that i enjoyed watching again the most yeah so as with these other end of the year episodes, you had a number of contenders that you had sent me initially. So I'm just going to go through them and let you say whatever you want to say about them. So, first was Address Unknown. I don't know that movie. So,
1: it's a Korean uh, drama. Um, I've only seen it one time. I own it on DVD. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it was, it was good as I remember. That's why I didn't make the list because I couldn't remember it fully. But, um, it was around that time that there was a lot of Korean like film was starting to be released in the United States. And we talked about this kind of with Whispering Corridor, but Mm -hmm. um, interesting to see like kind of the birth of that. Yeah. Um, And,
0: and kind of like in the past couple of years, the um, I guess solidification of Korean film being respected worldwide more and more. Um, Amelie. Not a huge fan of Amelie, but I think it's okay.
1: Another reason why I didn't make the list. I know a lot of people love Amelie. I mean, I think it's a beautiful movie, but it's not one that to me it's like whimsical and it's fine, I guess, but just not something that like really stuck with me. But still a good movie. The anniversary party? Uh some really great performances in that. Um, I don't think as good as any of the other five on this list, but still something that I when I was looking, I was like, all oh, right, like I really liked that movie when it came out.
0: Yeah. No, I, did. I remember liking it, too, a lot. Uh, Atlantis.
1: So that's one of my favorite Disney movies of, like, the latter-day Disney movies. Kind of, like, before Pixar took over Disney in general as, like, the de facto animation branch. Um, a really great action story uh, with the interesting premise of these explorers finding the lost city of Atlantis. Um, really, re- really good voice acting. This and Treasure Planet are probably my two favorite Disney movies outside of like the old traditional <clears throat> Disney stuff. So, worth watching if you've never seen it. Hey, uh, another one I don't know, La Cienaga. Um, it's a Spanish language um, drama involving a family uh, who are on vacation. Uh, it's good. I mean, it's yeah. it's on Criterion hmm. um, and definitely worth to watch. Um, really beautifully filmed. It's got kind of a cinema verite style to it um just really good cinematography and some pretty pretty strong acting Uh, fat girl that's one of the most uncomfortable movies you'll ever watch um it's about a family on vacation and this this young girl who's kind of coming of age while her older sister is becoming more like sexually adventurous and Her family is sort of falling apart because her parents, I can't remember which one, one of them is like having an affair, but there's just some really, really super uncomfortable stuff in it, but incredibly well-acted and um, worth watching. Another one that's a Criterion collection, like stalwart over the past like 20 years or so. Uh, Ghost World. Mm -hmm. I would argue the Ghost World is the one that I struggled the most with putting on this list because I really wanted to. Um, It's another one of those just awkward coming of age dramedies from around this time period that were pretty prevalent. Um, Great performances by Scarlett Johansson and uh, who is that? Thora Birch, right? Is the other one. Um, And one of the more cosmically depressing performances by um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Um, Just really, really hard to watch at points, but, Another one of those that it was kind of revelatory when it came out and really great and Mm -hmm. sort of kind of captured, I think, my feeling at the time being around that age of the people that, you know, the characters portrayed in the movie. So definitely worth a watch. If you have never seen Ghost World. It's it's, it's super good. Gosford Park. (sighs) Gosford Park is fine. Um, I didn't love it as much, I think, as some other people, but I thought it was a good movie. Um, it's got some good performances. Uh, it's really well filmed. It's like beautiful. Um, what would you call it? Like Elizabethan or Victorian? Maybe I don't know. Like mm-hmm. turn of the century, British, whatever. Um, but a good, a good movie.
0: Yeah. Uh, tr-
1: Lost track. Hedvig. We've already talked about it. I mean, yeah. I liked it a lot more than I thought I would, mm-hmm. and it was something that I, I wanted to. So when I do these lists, I basically just kind of scroll through movies that were released that year and just shove everything on the list that <clears throat> I have a, any kind of reaction to, like gut reaction, like, oh, right I, I like that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I kind of marinate on it for a couple of days, I go back and I think, like, okay, how much do you really remember about this movie? Um, so Hedwig was one that, like, a year ago I never would have thought about, but because we've seen it and... I genuinely enjoyed it I think for the most part although I don't think I like it as much as you like I thought it was a good movie and I thought there was a lot of merit to it um so I wanted to make sure it was on there and then uh E.G. the killer this is a movie that'll make another list someday but I don't know what list that'll be um I love E.G. the killer I think it's one of the most visually shocking movies of the early 2000s and just has this insane like almost live action anime feel to it at times um it was also one of the first like extreme japanese extreme movies that i had really gotten into when i was first getting into like those kind of movies that wasn't straight out horror that was something else you know kind of like a Mm -hmm. sci-fi crime i guess if you would like had to describe it as anything sure maybe surrealist crime or something but um some really uh, some really great visuals, great character design in it. Um, maybe not like a great movie, but I think it's pretty entertaining and worth watching. Another one that'll make you uncomfortable to watch.
0: And Chris escapes another year.
1: So Cairo? Uh, we talked about Cairo before. One of my favorite ghost movies of all time. Um, we'll revisit that at some point, so I don't yes. know that I wanted to like put it on the list again necessarily, but really like in genuinely i think one of the five best like ghost movies ever made
0: was that the very first episode yeah it's early on it's it's the top five movies involving hauntings right yeah i guess so yeah yeah so that's number episode number one we talked about that yeah um kandahar i don't remember this movie except i remember that i
1: liked it gotcha like i saw it on there i was like right kandahar like i liked that movie and then i never bothered to go back and like (laughs) try and remember um so it's a vague recommendation because I know that I enjoyed it, but I can't give any specifics on it. Uh, Millennium Actress. I don't know this one either. It's so not to spoil anything, but this is an animated movie hmm. um, directed by uh, Kon Ishigawa. I think is his name. K o n, and then some Japanese last name. Um, he directed Paprika and uh, Perfect Blue. Okay. Um, yeah. So this is very similar in tone in terms of like being like. Kind of like that Lynchian surrealism, um, but done to an extreme because, you know, it's animated. Um, I struggled with this because there's an animated movie on this list that we'll talk about. And I didn't want to put two animated movies Mm. on, but this is 100% worth checking out. And if you... I know that there's not a lot of people that can watch like adult animated movies in the sense of like, not like pornographic, but like adult, like mature themes um, but if you find that you can watch it like 100% worth seeing and like heartbreaking by the end of the movie, that's uh, really, hilarious. really
0: never mind. I've, I've, I've seen this movie, you made me watch this movie like 15 years ago. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's been forever. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen this now that I look up screenshots of it. Yes, I do remember that. Um, Holland Drive,
1: another movie we've talked about that I think is, um, it's not my favorite Lynch movie, but I really enjoy it, and I think it's got a lot of merit to it. Um, but again, that's something I wanted to talk about so recently since we've talked about it. Yeah. You don't think it's better than one like the first movie we we're going to talk about? Sure, but we've already talked about it. Okay, all right. Um, I, several movies we've talked about are better than the first movie we we're okay. going to talk about, but there's a nostalgic connection to that first okay. movie for yeah, me. Yeah,
0: so. I'm, I'm interested to hear about that.
1: The Others? I think The Others is another one of these just really great, solid ghost movies. Mm-hmm. Um, great performances, fantastic setting. Um, kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat if you don't know what the twist is in the movie. Um, and this is really before like the quote-unquote twist was a big thing in R. Uh, so Kidman in particular, just fantastic job in this movie. And <clears throat> But, I mean, is it better than any of the other five? Like, no. You know what I mean? So there's no way to put it on there, really. Okay.
0: Uh, the Piano Teacher? This is a...
1: Fuck, I can't remember this director's name. Haneke? Haneke, I think. One of his movies.
0: Uh, it was it another one. Haneke.
1: It was another one that jumped out of me. That He's a director that, like... He's always going to, like, stab you in the guts and, like, twist whenever you watch any of his movies. like all of his movies have some element of like human pathos in them that are just super uncomfortable at points um this is one of his lesser movies in my opinion although i think it's still really good um and if you are okay with like being uncomfortable it's definitely worth watching um really good performances by the two principals in it as well so that's that that's to me the biggest selling point but not my favorite Michael Haneke movie. And at some point we'll get to talk about my favorite one. So it'll be yeah. on a list somewhere.
0: Yeah. We talked about cache earlier in the year and um, I really like that a lot. I really, yeah. I, I like his film style. Yeah.
1: yeah. He's um, he just, he just really like gets at the center of things that we hate about ourselves mm-hmm. basically. And like just grabs that thing and like, explodes it in your face and it's yeah. um it's it's always difficult to watch um it, his most difficult movie to watch is funny games um the original version i think more so than the remake that he did of it um in english but um just i don't know like like normal people in terrible situations is his is bread and butter yeah and believably terrible situations not like right you know out of the whatever like fantastical Mm -hmm. terrible situations which makes it like probably he's probably one of the greatest directors of realistic horror like Mm -hmm. banal horror i guess i would call it um ever all right samsara it's another one where like i have vague recollections of it it's a beautiful movie but i don't really remember a whole lot about it and again another one i just didn't feel like going back and doing a lot of research on and storytelling storytelling is the one movie that doesn't belong on this list because it's a great movie, but I found it really compelling um, just because uh, like Solence is always going to be like Haneke. Like he's a guy that like thrives on making the audience confront like uncomfortable things in life. Um, and it fails here in a lot of ways because he just tries to go too far with it. But as a filmmaking experiment, I think it's fascinating to watch like, you know, the the different actors playing the same characters at different times and during different experiences. And um, again, while it's not like it kind of makes it a mess of a movie, but it's a really fascinating mess. And sometimes I think that those are like some of the more interesting movies to watch when you're kind of just like watching a train wreck sort of happen but it's like the most artfully constructed train wreck that you'll ever see so
0: and then e y-
1: tambian another it's a like a really beautiful well-filmed coming of age movie with some fantastic performances in it um maybe my favorite movie on this entire like the movie you've, movies you've listed in terms of the cinematography of it Mm -hmm. like i love the way that movie looks Mm -hmm. um i just don't know what i would say about it beyond like that so and i think maybe we do like a like a coming of age list sometime and then that comes as part of that um but really like just a an explosive like vibrant movie that sort of came out of nowhere that year
0: that's it yep all right So, remember, with these lists, we've decided at the end of the year that we're going to just talk about them in no specific order. We're not ranking these movies whatsoever. So, even though we're starting this first one, this isn't necessarily number five on the list, although I think it would probably be number five. It would be number five on the list. Right. So, um, the first movie we're going to talk about tonight is Blow, directed by Ted Demme. stars Johnny Depp, Penelope Cruz, Franco Potente, Rachel Griffiths. Um, oh I forgot Ray Liotta and Paul Rubens it has a 55 percent from critics and 87 percent from audiences you want to tell us a little bit about this and why it's on the list Uh, so this is the
1: semi-fictionalized biopic about uh, George Young who was a a major American trafficker for the Medellin cartel in the 70s and 80s uh, starting with marijuana, um, independently, but then cocaine uh, for the Medellin, Carlos Escobar or Pablo Escobar. Sorry. Um, I mean, it's a standard biopic, which to me is something that I really enjoy when it's done well. I think that seeing Depp in particular. So so we talked last week, we did the podcast about uh, who's the best Gen X actor or whatever. And we talked about Depp and one of the things that we discussed with him was the fact that he sort of sublimated his real personality in deference to being these fantastical, larger-than-life, wacky personas. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it sort of destroyed—not not destroyed, but it sort of lessened his legacy as a great actor. So when you watch a movie like this, this is maybe this maybe Donnie Brasco, maybe Finding Neverland, but really in this movie, because he plays such a tragically flawed character, I think this is one of his best performances ever in Mm -hmm. terms of just being human and believable and not a caricature where he's just a character where you don't see the elements of the other wacky personas creeping in. Sure. It's just this dude who through bad circumst or through circumstance led a life of crime, but came from this background where, you know, he had a genuine love for his, his father and really just wanted to do well by his family and help the people that he cared about and found a way to be successful doing something he was good at. And unfortunately the thing that he was good at was completely illegal and sent him to jail for long stretches of his life. But I think there's a really great humanity just in the way that you watch the young character approach the other people in his life. And you mentioned some of them, but this is maybe the most impressive cast on this entire list Hmm. from top to bottom in terms of just not necessarily stars, because a lot of these people weren't stars at the time. So Penelope Cruz wasn't a huge star in 2001. Franca Patente had been in a couple of indie movies, but you know, she's not like a star. Um, Rachel Griffiths. This is early, you know, in her movie career. So she's not, and maybe those people aren't even notable now, but she's not even on six feet under, I think at that point. No, cause that hasn't. Yeah. So there's all these character actors that just come together to make this really believable movie. And it comes close to aping boogie nights, a little too on the nose but skirts away from it enough where it's its own movie. And it's tough because you're talking about, it's filmed in basically the same setting, just in a different, whatever, um, industry, I suppose, if you want to look at like the international legal drug trade as an industry. Mm -hmm. But these people who are wealthy for doing something that no one has any real respect for and they really can't even talk about, Wealthy beyond like any measure of imagination, living these big lives and having these things happen to them that kind of cause all their downfall. And I think the cruise um, first brief of a time as she's in the movie because I think that she's that's actually my one criticism of the movie is the only real character in the movie is Johnny Johnny Depp's character is um, George Young, right. and everybody else is just kind of functions as a foil or a catalyst to something in his life, as opposed to being a fully formed character within the circle of his life. Does that make sense Mm -hmm. to the point where one of the main characters for the first 35 minutes of the movie, um, Ethan Suppley's tuna character is just written off with a single line of dialogue. Right. Like maybe he stayed in Mexico, who knows what happened to him. And this is a guy that was, you know, a major character in the movie for the first portion of it. Um, But those missteps aside, I think that it's got great performances. I like the way that it's filmed. It's very reverential to things like Scarface and Boogie Nights and Carlito's Way and whatever. Like those early 80s and, well, Boogie Nights is mid-90s, but it takes place in the 70s. Those movies that sort of try to capture the look of the 70s well after that decade was over. And I just, I enjoy it. And it was a movie that I really didn't know anything about when it came out. Uh, I didn't know much about the, that topic, the drug trade topic, especially the Escobar stuff was not as prevalent when we were, it became more prevalent with, especially hip hop artists kind of adopting Scarface. And then to another extent, like the Medellin cartel as being these, um, avatars for them almost, Mm -hmm. you know, like adopting those identities but it was a really good look at the, you know, sort of the inherent danger and risk that these people were taking and the fact that it doesn't glamorize it because he's always falling short and the heartbreaking relationship between him and his dad uh, that's exacerbated by the fact that his mom is just a self-righteous, you know, selfish jerk. It's um, I don't know. I really enjoy it. I think it's got great performances
0: yeah i i would argue with maybe the exception of one of the other movies on this list i think the first 30 minutes of this movie might be the best 30 30 minute opening on any of these movies list like there is the kinetic nature of those first 30 minutes of the high it get like almost like exudes to you as a viewer was fascinating because i've only seen parts of this movie i've never seen this entire movie and the watching the first 30 minutes is really good in terms of the rise of george young as a dealer i think after that it meanders i you know, Ebert said that it was well-made and well-acted and that the failure of this movie isn't a failure of anything involving the filmmakers or the principals. It's a failure of George Young's and that he's not a very interesting character to make a story about. Right. Uh, and he says that like, it's almost like Ray Liotta being in this movie reminded him of so much of Goodfellas where it took a less important criminal and made him much more interesting. And that was like the opposite of this. Uh, sure. um, but I th- okay go ahead. Anyway, go, ahead.
1: go ahead. i just so i agree with that to a point but i think that's what makes it fascinating is here's a dude that's not waving a gun around and being the toughest guy in the room or being the guy that's negotiating these big deals because of his like you know his big balls or his mm-hmm. large personality it's just a dude that was so nice <laughs> right that people were just like, all right, yeah, we'll let you move our drugs because no one ever suspected him because he's just this right white guy in the seventies that's able to get through, you know, customs easily without getting searched. I I think I
0: I think this movie personally, the thing and this is the oddest like thing for me to say, I think this movie needed like another 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah,
1: it would have been more interesting if you had more time with him in the span between so where this movie sort of falters a little bit is the death of um, Franco Patente's uh, character. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, so that's his first arrest and her death from cancer is to your point, like, where it goes from being this kinetic... Almost like, exactly kind of boogie nights, this feeling of like... Yeah, like a
0: contact It's just going and going
1: and going and then it just kind of drops because then you have to get him into... Columbia to meet with cartel and Mm -hmm. get with Diego and there's all the things that happened there and but I think that's indicative of how this man's life was because I I truly believe that when you look at the movie what it's saying is that he loved this woman and she was the reason why he was doing everything he did and when she was gone he was kind of aimless you know he just sort of Mm -hmm. meandered all over the place and then that's why he fails so much later in his life because he's careless at that point. He doesn't it doesn't really matter to him. So when his entire west coast connection is taken away from him, he doesn't really fight back. He just kind of takes it. He gets beat and he sort of retires in a lot of ways from it and then, you know, you just see that there's this guy making these really bad decisions, but ultimately because he's just trying to help out the people that he cares about. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Uh, so anyway i thought this was a good movie overall i
1: just to me i feel like the same way because this is a really weird analogy but it's like when we talked about milk the um Mm -hmm. Penn harvey milk biopic right it's almost the same thing it's like does it do anything crazy or innovative or whatever like no but is it just a really good encapsulation and picture of this person's life and I think that it is and I Mm -hmm. again one of my favorite Depp performances I I think that he's really really captures the heart of a person without having to dip into his bag of tricks kind of
0: yeah um and I, I I agree with you about Depp and I mean the only two things I would probably add to your list of like these normal characters that I think is really strong performances is what's eating Gilbert Grape and Nick of Time? Yeah, exactly. I, I think he does great in that kind of like uh, whatever, like uh, what Cary Grant role, like of the Hitchcock film. Like, sure. Um, and Paul Rubin, uh, you know what? Like, Paul Rubens, I, I never understood. I, I guess it's the Pee Wee thing and maybe the pornography thing i don't understand why paul rubens doesn't get more work yeah i don't know like and it's weirder because paul rubens popped up a lot pa- paul rubens popped up in batman returns, batman returns right and he's going to be popping up next month in a movie too on the um uh director turned actor list so um it's going to be three months in a row paul Rubens. um <clears throat> two months. that's what you need in your life yeah but it's not a very long filmography in terms of him, but I think he's always serviceable in everything that he does. Like when I see him and it's just always really weird. Like, I don't know how he didn't become like, like the actor, Willie Garson, who just died that I really like a lot. Like I'm, I'm surprised like he wasn't Willie Garson of that time period. Kind of. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, he's really good in this. Yeah. Good. Good performances. Although I saw Penelope Cruz got nominated for, um Oh, what are those? What's the bad awards? Razzie. Yeah, the Razzies. Um, Which is weird. I don't know where that comes from. Uh, I think that it's maybe a reaction to
1: this in Vanilla Sky mm. in such close proximity where... Makes sense. And also, I think... I don't want to call it inherent racism, but I think that there's... There's a barrier that comes from an actor moving from being successful in their native language to acting in american films this is and we'll we'll talk about this actually in two movies from now but i think it's just difficult and i think that there's ways of emoting in your native language that don't necessarily come across the same so here she seems shrill i think at points in this movie but i don't think it's because it's a bad performance i think it's just because of what she's trying to emote and i think the penelope cruz throughout her career has become a much better actress in English language films than she was around this point in time. Yeah, because she's fantastic in some Spanish language films before mm-hmm. this. So, and I can't think of any off the top of my head, and I've already closed blow out of my browser, so <laughs> I can't go back. But...
0: I I have one last question for you. For go on to the next movie, is out of this out of the soundtrack, what is the most seventy song out of these songs that I'm going to list to you? Okay. That Smell by Leonard Skinner. Can't You See by Marshall Tucker Band. Blinded by the Light by uh, Manford Mann's Earth Band. And Black Betty by... Oh, no, that's Manford. Hold on. Uh, Blinded by the Light. No, Ram Jam is Black Betty. So Black Betty, Blinded by the Light, Can't You See, and That Smell. What do you think is the most 70s song out of those four songs?
1: It's probably blinded by the light because it marries rock with a disco sensibility, Hmm. so it sort of bridges the gap of like all the the two most popular genres. I kind of consider Black Betty to have been a latter day song in terms of popularity. I I feel like Black Betty didn't hit really any kind of level of popularity until like the mid to late nineties, and then you just heard it everywhere.
0: Yeah. All right. Although, it's hard to argue against Skinner. Skinner. But, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fucking Skinner. <clears throat> All right. So, the next movie that we were going to talk about is Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away. It is a 97% from critics, 96% from audiences. So, we've only covered a couple, one or two Ghibli movies on here. Ghibli movies, right? Uh, we talked about Totoro. Yeah, that's it. Are we talking
1: about anything else? I yeah, maybe that's it. Else. Maybe it's
0: just Totoro. Maybe we talked about a couple of movies surrounding that, like Totoro, like when we were talking about that. So yeah, maybe that's it. So yeah, Spirited Way, take it. Go ahead.
1: Oh, what an introduction. Um, <laughs> so, winner of the Academy Award for Animated Film uh, for 2001. Yeah. This movie follows... A young girl who's moving to a new town with her parents. On the day that they're moving in, they discover this mysterious tunnel that the mother and father follow through, and they find this kind of entire I don't know what you call it, like castle slash marketplace is filled with all this amazing food. The parents start eating and are turned into pigs. And it turns out that they've eaten the food of the spirits, which they're not allowed to do. Uh, so the young girl, she sort of escapes and through her pluck and I don't know, ingenuity works her way into becoming part of the kitchen staff sort of for this spirit world, all in the auspices of trying to find a way to save her parents. Uh, she runs afoul of a witch who controls, um, Like the, I guess the castle, sort of the spirit, um, and has enslaved the spirit of this, what is he, like a water dragon? Um, So the girl saves him, ends up saving her parents, is able to escape being stuck in the spirit world, even though you sort of feel in a lot of ways like she fits in better there um, and is able to get her parents back. And it's like no time has passed. Um, It's a really great, well done fairy tale story. Uh, miyazaki miyazaki is the king of capturing the transition from childhood wonder and credulousness into that murky area of prepubescent and early teen kind of doubt and realism sort of so he's really good at taking characters that are like nine to 11 12 years old and showing them kind of in their not really fall from grace or loss of innocence but sort of their understanding that you can't be a kid forever and he does it in Totoro he does it here uh Howl's Movie Castle Kiki's Delivery Service I mean there's so many movies Castle in the Sky where he where that's making characters that age his central character it allows you to kind of believably dally in the world of like the mystical and these fairy tale elements while still having themes that are understandable and recognizable as an adult, you know in terms of struggle and loss and sadness and a lot of his movies entail children losing a parent or having a parent in peril and he just he captures it like perfectly. I mean he's in my opinion, the greatest animated filmmaker ever. Uh, I don't think there's anybody that <clears throat> is able to make movies that, in a more high minded way, bridge the gap between adults and children. Um, you'll see movies that appeal to children and adults, and I think Pixar does a good job of it. But to me, Pixar does it more in a way that's I don't want to say lowbrow because that's not necessarily right, but Miyazaki just generally I think captures more of a feeling of a philosophical mindset of the difference between childhood and adulthood and what you lose becoming an adult from being a child and what you can still carry with you into adulthood from being a child like you know a sense of wonder and a sense of connection to a world greater than yourself that a lot of times when you have a nine-to-five job you sort of lose that feeling Um, and it's Brilliantly uh, captured here, and the idea that his, her parents, whose only concern is just consuming food because they're hungry, they turn into pigs and she saves them from slaughter basically by her ingenuity and her selflessness, and the way that she just treats everything with respect because she's kind and loving. And I don't know, just a really well written character, and it's beautifully animated. Some of the, mm. the, um, no face, not not no face is that what it's called no face the thing with the the black blobby thing with the um no mask um just looks amazing like all the animation and it's fantastic i love his style because it's anime but it's not that super deformed overly exaggerated like physique anime that you think about typically from um i think most people who don't watch anime like think of when they think of you know foreign animated films um, he's got a very soft, almost watercolor feeling to his movies where things like water feels wet. And, you know, when you look at a, the way he animates the wind blowing through grass or leaves blowing, like if there's almost a tactile sensation to watching his movies, that's um, that's pretty amazing, I think, to watch. So we had a great experience going to see this movie in the theater. Uh, we went to one of the ritz theaters uh, the ritz east i think in philadelphia um one afternoon and just watched it and we were all really impressed by it one of my favorite miyazaki movies in general i would say that this totoro maybe castle in the sky princess mononoke i don't know there's there's some really great
0: Miyazaki i would say, is I would say it's castle in the, just based on having heard you talk about him a lot i would say it's castle in the sky just based on what i think your answer is i love Val's movie castle too if you have any if
1: you've not really had much experience with if you have a bad a bad opinion of anime because of the whole weeb um association with like hentai and just weird like sexualization of children the me is the the studio ghibli movies are the ones to watch that will show you what the genre is capable of like Mm -hmm. watching this grave of the fireflies Uh, even there's like Arietti, which is a animated version of the littles if you've ever seen the Littles, which was a tv show when we were kids um ponyo there's just all these really great fairy tale stories that when you just sit there and watch them as an adult, it helps you feel a sense of wonder and adventure, and mm-hmm. you don't feel like you're being condescended to. It doesn't feel overly cloying or cheap. It just feels really well earned, and they're all really good stories, and they have this great, almost Brothers Grimm esque fairy tale feeling to them. I think so. Me, yeah, I love Spirited Away. Amazing movie.
0: Yeah, I I'm not an animated movie person. Everybody that listens regularly to this has heard those jokes before that I don't particularly care for animated movies a lot. And it gets worse I think once we get into computer graphics more so, but <clears throat> uh and what I guess the Pixarization, vacation of of those movies uh where they start following some formula like really, really bothers me, but uh, his movies Miyazaki's movies are not like that like whatsoever like exactly what you were saying about like not much can make me capture re re, try to recapture wonder again but his movies certainly make get me the closest probably like the the description that you gave of this movie is fucking ludicrous like on the on it's on the surface (laughs) like it may like and but they're all like that There are all these, like, if you just describe, like, oh, this is the plot points that happen in this movie, and here's who the characters are. They all sound so fucking weird and so fucking bizarre. But he has this way of drawing you into that world, no matter how odd it is, and not only making it feel normal, but it's also the most engaging and like spiritually and emotionally satisfying thing that you can experience in those 90 to 120 minutes every single time agreed and yeah spirited away is probably one of my favorites agreed um out of all those totoro spirited away i really like how's moving castle a lot Mm,
1: it's a good movie here's here's the thing with miyazaki is that one of the issues with anime and with movies that are sort of made to appeal to a young male perspective because that's what a lot of anime is made for or mm-hmm. seemingly, is that they tend to invest characters with too much power, where it becomes mm-hmm. sort of a transfer transference of of the viewer into like the power of another being where you feel, I don't know. They I, I don't know how to explain this. So that sounded like ridiculous. It's like Miyazaki has normal humans interacting with godlike beings in a way that doesn't feel like it's it's playing into that teenage male power fantasy thing. Oh no which I is understood. I think I, I think what's super off putting sometimes about some anime. And in general, like over the past 20 years, anime has evolved incredibly to be much more, it casts a much wider net now in terms of stuff that can appeal to a large variety of different interests and groups and isn't necessarily just like buxom, you know, cat girls and whatever, like dudes with harems or and insane superpowers and it's actually kind of one of the failings of akira in a lot of ways even though i love that movie is that akira is hey you're the nerdy guy but you could also be take your revenge on all these cool people because you get psychic powers and you just destroy an entire city i mean that's the like the male ego like stroking in that movie that Mm -hmm. doesn't exist
0: in miyazaki movies no and it's because the children are much younger um, I, I it doesn't matter whether it's a young boy or young girl in his movies. A lot of times, I think because of their age, where and 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 their gender doesn't really a lot of times come into it very often.
1: Yeah, because there's not sexualized at all. They're just exactly children. right. So
0: so 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 it does that, and and I think there's a humility, like you were. I think that thing you were talking about to me, it's humility. It's like there is no, none of this necessarily. There's very rarely like this kind of like moving up on the great chain of being. It's more about proving yourself and coming more into who you are and growing up, but never overcoming those greater forces necessarily it's learning how to, how to navigate them or, you know, work with them or something along those lines. Um, He, I, I, I haven't seen many where it's like they overcome like, you know, and become higher than or better than any of those forces. And I think that's the idea of achieving adulthood is, is not teaching children that they can overcome those like forces, those, those like larger forces. But they can win sometimes and but a lot of times they have to work within the parameters of those of this unknown world you know but yeah he's he's a fascinating guy and again i'm not an animation person like at all and i just mean in general i don't understand drawings i don't understand any of that stuff like only in the vaguest ways but yeah i love it i love the way his movies look i mean they're always like these like beautiful like you know works of art and I love the coloring that he uses and all the different movies and stuff like that I mean I think they're yeah they're great yeah they're a, real, a real treasure that guy like to like the world <laughs> all right so next movie on your list is it's a lot of really good directors <clears throat> uh, The Devil's Backbone directed by Guillermo del Toro it stars Marissa Paredes eduardo noriega Federico lupi and fernando tielva it has a 95 percent from critics and 89 percent from audiences uh you want to tell them a little bit about this movie and why it's on the list sure um so this is del toro's third feature film
1: uh, after uh chronos which was mm-hmm. spanish language and then um Uh, Mimic, which we talked about, uh, both those movies in the 90s, uh, horror movies Mm -hmm. lists. Set during the end of the Spanish Civil War, it follows a young boy who's sent to an orphanage that's run by the Republican loyalists who are opposed to Franco. Um, In this orphanage, there's supposedly this treasure that's hidden well not even supposedly there's a treasure that's hidden which is these reserves are being used to kind of supply the loyalists held by this husband and wife um there's a sort of really nice similar i guess kind of the spirited way in some ways that this interesting look at childhood especially under uncomfortable circumstances or terrible circumstances because Uh, The main character, Cesar, his parents are dead, and he's in this orphanage, and he becomes friends with the guy that's sort of the bully in the orphanage, and they build this bond, him and some of the other kids, but the orphanage is haunted, supposedly, by the ghosts of this young boy who had died under mysterious circumstances, I guess, a couple years before, like the year before, uh, during a bombing. Um, So you had asked me this question the other night, and I want to bring this up because I think this is think this is an interesting way to talk about this movie and you had said about sort of the idea where you find out that the ghost is not the threat in the movie yeah i found found to
0: refer to as humanist
1: a humanist ghost story yeah and i think it's really interesting and especially because we just talked about uh stir of echoes um Mm -hmm. earlier this year which is nowhere near the movie this movie is in any way, shape, or form, but is the same idea where you think initially there's the haunting and that's the thing that's the quote unquote, like horror of the movie. But then it turns out that it's the human element of it, which is the horror of the movie. So in this movie, it's the character of Jacinto who's having an affair with the, the wife and who's just a terrible person and ends up causing the deaths of pretty much all the primary characters in yeah. this movie aside from cesar and who gets his and set the hands of the ghosts that you're kind of led to believe especially in the early to mid part of the movie is the th- the threat or the supernaturally like, uncanny force that you're supposed to be afraid of and del toro does an amazing job just because of the way that he films um santi who's the young boy that Uh, you're initially led to believe died in the bombings but it turned out died because Jacinto killed him so he couldn't reveal that he was trying to steal the gold from the orphanage as this darkish figure with this huge pool of blood just leaking upwards out of his head and aesthetically the look of it is amazing the first time you see it especially it's such a such a powerful interesting take on how to represent a ghost where it feels ethereal and it feels disconnected from the physical world yet still maintains an element of immediacy when you see it like it's it's really shocking the first time you see the ghost of santi in the movie mm-hmm. and del toro Del Toro is an interesting director because we've, we've talked about this. I think we've even talked about this on the podcast, but we've definitely talked about it off air where I feel like Del Toro is one of the greatest Spanish language directors working in the world today that has incredible difficulty directing movies in English. Like when you take mimic and you take this and you put them next to each other, I don't know that you would ever guess that that was the same director that was responsible. Right. And you can say the same thing about the Hellboy movies and like Pan's Labyrinth, you know, and Pan's Labyrinth, Mm -hmm. probably his most critically acclaimed movie that he did or he's done in his career. But you look at that and you look at just, and I, so I was thinking about it when I was talking about, when I was thinking about this movie today and how I wanted to talk about it. Because I think the most interesting thing is that I feel like it's the connection to Spanish history and real life events that, del toro can invest so much of himself personally in this movie where it feels like you watch something like pacific rim and i know the pacific rim is a big budget action movie Mm -hmm. but it lacks that that humanist element to it that i think this movie has and i really feel like it's because del toro has this deep personal connection with the spanish civil war this time period just the idea of loss and the human element that comes with filming a movie that's based in his own country and you see that in pan's labyrinth too because how have i know that you've seen that movie but have you seen that movie recently at all no so i watched it again last year or i watched it again earlier this year Mm -hmm. just direction wise performance wise it's just so powerful and you watch something like hellboy and there's a lot of that element that goes out of it and i i really just think that he's
0: i I don't know here's an interesting just very very quick but like recent event that's happened here is (laughs) i've been avoiding watching crimson peak Despite me watching every damn horror movie that's in existence, I didn't even know he directed Crimson Peak until yeah. two, two weeks ago. So, but I've avoided it because of um, Hiddleston's like cheekbones or whatever, like staring at me. Like, um, so I, I just can't click play. Brandy watched it out of nowhere, my wife. And so she watches it and is describing it to me. And I was like, yeah, I never hit play on that. And She's like describing to me like well here's the things that are good about it like you know it it and and she's not like a, a a movie buff and she doesn't understand like you know like a lot of the language but she's like it's filmed really well and she says the the performances are good but there's like this thing that's just missing out of it it's like right. there's it's like scenes don't necessarily like there's no like kind of unifying thing to all of it to where it just feels like it's a bunch of things happening and i don't know why they're happening and it feels like there's just this something and she couldn't describe it it was like just this thing that's missing in all of it and i was like who the hell direct i just out of curiosity like who the hell directed that like because she was telling me it like looks like really nice on the screen and stuff like you know um yeah i looked it up that's him (laughs) And it's like, yeah, there is this intangible thing that is lost when he directs
1: in English. Right, and I don't understand that because you you watch interviews with him and he speaks perfect English. Sure. He has an absolute command of the language in the sense that I, I think if... I don't know that in the modern day if you didn't know that he was a Spanish language director that you would even know that he was a Spanish language director. If that makes sense. Sure. But it's not even just. There's this weird sheen to all of his English language films where they feel like you're watching something that was manufactured. Mm-hmm. Crimson peak is a beautiful movie, mm-hmm. but it is a weak ass Gothic romance. Honestly. Yes. Right. And the Hellboy movies, beautiful fucking movies, but they just, they're missing. I don't know if maybe he feels like that's what it takes to be successful in American film that you can't have nuance, but he loses all of his nuance in his American language films. And it's like double's backbone is a hundred percent a movie that if you enjoy horror movies you should watch right and and think about the
0: intricacy of the plots in this movie
1: frank right like that's why i didn't even really go into it too much because right because there are like 15 minutes explaining
0: like six different like plots that are going on almost in this movie
1: right it's almost like three different movies honestly yeah it's it's definitely a three-act structure Mm -hmm. in its most traditional form and you feel each act distinctly and it almost mirrors um Cesar's transition from lonely sad wide-eyed orphan to the guy that's sort of leading the rest of the orphans to civilization again at the end of that movie and it's but it's brilliant and it looks amazing the spanish countryside is beautiful the way he films that bombed out crumbling uh whatever the orphanage used to be i don't remember um the way he films all that stuff it's just got this It's close to whimsical, but with an element of sadness to it, where it's like, not really whimsy. It's kind of melancholy. Like he's just very fantastical, melancholic way of filming things. When the underwater stuff where it's all almost like neon phosphorescent, you know, to so you can see the things tumbling through the water, like all of that is just amazing and it's beautiful and it's, yeah i don't know and then you go and watch you know blade two or whatever and it's like what the fuck like how is this the same person
0: yeah yeah i Um, mean not because i can't imagine anything he's done so far in english language is going to ever appear on this podcast right uh
1: we may talk about the shape of water someday
0: okay um I shouldn't say that because I've never seen the whole movie, but I've seen half of it. Uh,
1: I'm sort of excited for Nightmare Alley. I'm curious to see what uh, that looks like. I'm
0: always excited. That's the problem with this dude. I'm always excited. We talked about Hellboy, didn't we? No. We never talked about Hellboy. Yeah, I see,
1: I don't know. Maybe that's the comic adaptations outside the MCU. Right. That falls under. But again, it's like I love the comic of Hellboy. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the movie is a very good adaptation. honestly like i think it i think and not not to get too much into talking about comics but mike mike mignola who draws draws and writes hellboy myths all his creation invests this feeling of almost edward gory-esque like abstraction to his art where everything it's got humor and it's got heart but it also has this really cool macabre almost abstractionism to it and making hellboy look the way it looks it just feels manufactured yeah and that's i mean that's the way that i think all of his american movies feel is they don't feel like pan's labyrinth feels old and Mm -hmm. fantastical and when you're looking at that pale man you know down in the Mm -hmm. underworld of her and because it's all it's all based around the imagination of the child really is like where the horror comes from in in those movies. <clears throat> and then he just loses that somehow when he makes these American movies. So I don't know. And the one thing that I hope more than anything with Guillermo del Toro, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro is that he is able to make his at the mountains of madness adaptation of Lovecraft, mm-hmm. because yeah. that dude has been trying to make that movie for 20 some years. And I would love to see, him take on lovecraft because i think that i think hp lovecraft is <clears throat> maybe the most difficult writer to film effectively because of the way he describes things and unless you capture it you just end up looking goofy you know and i think if anybody can capture it i think it's del toro but we'll see right but, yeah but this movie devil's, devil's backbone is it's really well written it's got a very to your point very complex plot that maintains your interests and builds the stakes like it raises the stakes constantly and genuinely makes you feel the people that you're watching are in peril and you're kind of rooting for them to succeed and in my opinion one of the best um, filmic adaptations of a supernatural entity in any movie ever yeah like I to me it's on par with the way that Cairo films ghosts Hmm. in the sense that they don't they feel truly detached from the physical world, but still believable, if that makes sense. Like, I don't feel like I'm watching a CGI effect and I don't feel like I'm watching a person in a suit or whatever with makeup. It genuinely feels disconnected from reality, which I think is the most important part of like a truly good ghost movie is having that feeling. Yeah. And And where most ghost movies film it by not like the changeling, by never showing the ghost at all so you never have to it's always your imagination of what's causing you know that wheelchair to move or that ball Mm -hmm. to bounce Mm -hmm. whereas like those two movies cairo and devil's backbone they just that's actually an interesting thing if we ever revisit that hauntings list to talk about like what movies truly capture the look of a ghost in a way that makes sense and feels appropriate So I can shit on the Conjuring and Insidious (laughs) movies again.
0: (laughs) What What's fascinating to me about this is every, in pretty much every way, this movie is just a well executed movie. But it's like it's it's impossible to describe this movie, which is again is why you haven't talked about it. Not only are there so many plots going on, this gets labeled as either like a ghost story, a ghost movie, or a gothic horror or something along those lines. This movie is a coming of age story. It is kind of like a gothic horror ghost story sure. It's all, but it's a coming of age, it's a war it's a war movie. It is a noir at times. You know, it is a standard drama at times. Like this movie just covers so many genres in it. With yes, at the core is this ghost story, but it is it is a story and I I, I think that label goes beyond just that humanist ghost story or whatever goes beyond just the idea that the humans are the horror it's like this movie is about people in general like in terms of like you know trying to show like what it is to be i don't know good right (laughs) by you know putting it against people that are awful um you know at the same time but i it's a it's a pretty amazing movie like i liked it 15 some years ago when you made me watch it and then i didn't know if it would hold up honestly and it, it did it's a solid movie like all the way around so that's i don't have a lot to say about it. it's just really well executed and it really shows me the talent that del toro had and yeah i've been kind of disappointed ever since watching this like 15 years ago and thinking oh okay like i'm i'm really excited about this you know or i'm really excited about this coming out and it just never just never pans out really i'm hoping nightmare alleys it though you know and fuck i'll even watch a stop motion animation version of pinocchio like, oh my God, I'm so excited. For I'm, that. Sure I'm sure you are. I'm sure fucking
1: awful i I here's the secret about me <laughs> I fucking hate Pinocchio. I Pinocchio is one of my least favorite i I don't know if there's any adaptation of Pinocchio where I genuinely feel okay when I'm watching it. Uh-huh. like I despise Pinocchio as a story as I think it's weird and I don't know. So I I hope this movie's great and it can change my Pinocchio hate because it's pretty strong.
0: And I I I, I kind of like the Disney Pinocchio like when I was a kid, but um I haven't seen it in a very very long time. And but I hate stop motion animation, so so we'll see. But I watch it, you know. I I'm always rooting for Del Toro no matter what, and mostly yeah, adver- and mostly I think it's because of this fucking movie um that i'm rooting for him more than anything but all right so next on your list is wes anderson's the royal tenenbaums starring jesus gene hackman angelica houston ben stiller gwyneth paltrow luke wilson Owen wilson danny glover bill murray seymour castle kumar palana it was discussed as well on episode 15 of this podcast when we had friend of the podcast jason Heaster on to talk about the best west anderson movies we talked about both world henembaums and life aquatic so if you want any more you can go back to that but it has an 81 percent from critics and 89 percent from audiences so you want to just recap a little bit about this movie and why you felt it needed to be on the list so following
1: the lives of dysfunctional tenant mom family headed by patriarch royal who's been estranged from his family due to the fact that he's a colossal asshole uh, for quite some period of time it follows mostly the lives of his now three adult children uh, ben stiller uh, paltrow and luke wilson um, and their relationships with each other Uh, Some various kind of tertiary characters to the family like Luke or Owen Wilson, who plays childhood friend and guy who's sort of gained prominence and fame off writing a book about the Tenenbaums. Um, The Angelica Houston's new beau um, slash fiance, um, played by Danny Glover. It's. It's interesting because. I I think Wes Anderson is one of the most has one of the most singular visions of any film director in the modern day where much like with Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson you know when you're watching a Wes Anderson film like it it feels a certain way mm-hmm. it's got a certain kinetic energy to the way that scenes are shot and framed there's distinct preciousness to the way that he composes his soundtracks for his films and the way he arranges songs there's a really distinct look where it's sort of modern but also anachronistic at the same time and there's a blending of the fashions of different ages to a point where you never feel like you're looking at people that could have actually existed but it almost feels like they could have um and i think the ten of bobs captures all of that really well including Just his very tight, no perfect dialogue that he writes for people where there's almost a sense of scriptedness to it. Like if you're watching a play where it feels very purposeful, like where a character is saying something because what they're saying, because in film, you know, you're capturing everything and you can look at minutia and you can focus on small things and the director is guiding the viewer to different points whereas you know on on stage the characters have to be more emotive because they're guiding your perception to where they want it to be based on how they're moving and what they're saying and anderson does this thing where he it almost looks like he's almost always filming a play and his dialogue kind of represents that but it still feels like a film and so it's this really cool Amalgamation of the two, where it almost feels like you're watching somebody playing in like a dollhouse or a sandbox or something, but with real people. I don't know how else to explain it Mm -hmm. other than that. And I think that this, I think Rushmore, this and Life Aquatic perfectly capture that feeling in the sense where you know you're watching a movie, but it helps you suspend your disbelief enough where you kind of just get swept up in what's happening with the people and in this movie Tenenbaums is 100% driven by the performances of all the actors in it, from the smallest performance up through one of you know in his most masterful performances um Hackman playing Royal just with this air of I don't even know what I call him like maybe latter-day Burt Lancaster mixed with Ernest Hemingway with a touch of Popeye Doyle, you know, like all combined together, except that like doomed almost like classically doomed to Mm -hmm. fail at everything because of his hubris maybe. And so maybe that's, maybe that's why, I don't know. Like I just shit those three names out of my brain, (laughs) but Like you really do feel like here's a guy, and you're thinking of Atlantic Burt Lancaster, Atlantic City, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really like it's, it's to me, it's watching this and watching Life Aquatic together are so perfect because it's about two men who have failed as fathers and have no idea who want to correct course, but have no idea how to correctly correct their course, and are just stumbling through the end like the latter parts of their lives and Hackman just does this amazing job of he wants to spend time with his family but he doesn't know how to do it in a way that's meaningful and without still being this overbearing insulting asshole that he's been his whole life but he knows that he's an insulting overbearing asshole he just doesn't know how to correct it and it's so fascinating watching throughout the movie him ingratiate himself and him learn from his mistakes and forcibly humble himself to the point of becoming an elevator operator but still maintaining an air of dignity i mean it's 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 a really masterful performance on his part yes and like buoyed so much by glover and houston and both um luke and owen wilson and one of Paltrow's best, most understated performances that's both wistful and heartbreaking at the same time. Like, you kind of fall in love with her a little bit, but it also makes you really sad, like, right up until the end. um, I think that one of the greatest pseudo-dramatic performances by Stiller in his entire career in capturing this guy who's driven financially by a need to be better, than what his father ever was by being successful and a better parent to his kids and also dealing with the traumatic loss of his wife. And it's just, I don't know. And it looks beautiful. Anderson perfectly captures, I think, the feeling of a city as you would want it to be, as opposed to a city as it is, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like where it feels like a small community and it feels kind of frozen in time almost in the way that he shoots buildings and you don't feel the the creep of the outside world kind of pushing in which i think is something that wes anderson does particularly well Is he captures enough of the modern world where it feels modern without weighing you down with the problems that the modern world contains maybe mm-hmm. um and i think the Moms does that amazingly and really great sense of humor to it you know and just
0: pretty amazing movie yeah um the main thing that i took away from this was watching it for i don't know how many times now was the performances and i think hackman is one of his top performances probably ever for a guy who i've been saying for at least two years now, if not more, is like the revelation of this podcast to me is how damn good Gene Hackman really is as an actor and the variety of characters he can play. This feels wholly new as a character, something he's never done before. And he was pressured as I was reading into this movie a bit more. He was really pressured by the cast to do this role. He didn't want to do it. He, wanted, he, he wasn't ready to retire yet. But he was ready to be semi-retired and not do not do movies very often and was really pressured by Angelica Houston and Bill Murray and the Wilsons to really like kind of do this movie. And I'm glad he did because no, yeah. I think Royal Tenenbaum is one of the best characters Gene Hackman's ever played. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think it shows this knack that he doesn't really show very often it's like we talked about get shorty earlier in the year and it's like you don't really get a lot of times where you get to see gene hackman try to do comedy in his career and damn if he doesn't nail both get shorty as harry and royal tenenbaum and as much as i love get shorty it's like one of my favorite comedies of all time um royal tenenbaum is a masterpiece of a character in terms of moving between that pathos of the character and the pathos of his like arc i guess and the the sardonic scummy comedy of the character like it every single time it gets me when chaz is in the ambulance with royal every single time I watch this movie it gets me um, right. and it's royal smile behind that mask that gets me like every single time and of course it has to be Chaz I think in in that particular scene that is there with him given their particular relationship but um but yeah like uh, it gets me every single time I the other thing watching at this time is, luke wilson and owen wilson for whatever reasons some of them legitimate some of them not get shit on i think like a lot um like are are just not taken very seriously sometimes and owen certainly that makes sense um for the characters they play in this they they are they absolutely nail them and so does gwyneth paltrow i guess maybe to a slightly lesser degree i don't know um But the suicide scene with Richie and that Elliot Smith song playing over the background is probably one of the most, one of the best, which is an odd way of putting that one of the best and most horrific suicide scenes in the middle of this like quirky and, and everybody, you know, kind of downs Anderson as being this you know, oh, he's like so quirky and everything's like so saccharine and like that is a devastating. Brutal scene to put in the middle of this movie. And I think it takes a lot of guts to like right. insert that and do it as kind of graphically as he does. And I found I, I found it watching it this time to be really horrific inside of the movie not in a bad way necessarily but like a, a really kind of just gutsy thing to do inside oh of yeah this you know world full of wonder with these quirky prodigies turned you know see to me that's
1: the brilliant thing about the movie is that Rushmore is 100 that movie right yeah and then you come to this movie and it's like there's underneath the surface of everything like that surface tension that exists in the Tenenbaum family can only can only support so much pressure from the outside before it bursts and that's Mm -hmm. the burst is that thing and you see it in their interactions with each other and things left unsaid and I mean I know a lot of people kind of shit on Anderson sometimes not even shit on but like and sometimes rightfully so sort of pigeonhole him as just being this eccentric quirky you know director and i think that anderson i think that anderson has a really deft touch when it comes to showing the true pathos of human existence and he just does it in his own way and that's Mm -hmm. you know that's the breaking point there for that family and ultimately the thing that The catalyst to resolving almost every single family issue comes from you know that character uh, cutting his hair Mm -hmm. sort of being the first one out of all of them could you look at him like okay so here's here's the way to look at it multiple scenes in this movie show the tenenbaums as children interacting with hackman and houston mostly hackman in different ways when they're when they're children right mm-hmm. margo is always wearing a fur coat with you know kind of the straight right bob haircut and um stiller's character is always wearing the adidas tracksuit, and wilson's character is always headband long hair sunglasses mm-hmm. tennis attire and it's him being the only one to being the first one to forcibly change his outward appearance to shed all of that
0: baggage and they trauma become, that he's carried right, with them they become frozen in the expectations that they have as children
1: right and that's him metamorphosizing right. into an adult basically like mm-hmm. coming out of the shadow of being right. the failed tennis star and just becoming whatever he becomes you know a person like a new human by you know getting rid of all that stuff from the past and i think it's it's i never even thought about it until just now like saying it but it's a really amazing visual metaphor that anderson mm-hmm. does that he doesn't beat you over the head with right. it's never mentioned by anyone in the movie aside from the fact that oh you cut your hair or whatever it looks nice but it's it's so powerful and like just really brilliant for him to do it that way and i don't know i mean i there's no Wes Anderson movies that I dislike. I think maybe I like bottle rocket the least out of all of them. And Mm -hmm. not the biggest fan of Darjeeling limited, although I think it's got some good parts to it. Um, And I haven't seen the French dispatch yet, but I don't know. Like I just, I, I I love his vision of the world and I just like Mm -hmm. the way that he captures and he brings out the best in pretty much every actor he ever works with. Like you're going to get a great performance or at least a memorable performance. So,
0: yeah, no, agreed. Um, really enjoy watching this movie every single time I watch it, and yeah. yeah um, never, I'm never disappointed by the end of it. Or Have
1: Have you watched either of his animated features?
0: Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox I had. What's the other one? Isle of Dogs? I have not watched Isle of Dogs, no. Yeah.
1: I don't think I appreciated Fantastic Mixer,
0: Mr. Fox
1: as much I I want to watch that movie again. I think that movie is really, really well done. I don't know. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that some other time, but yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, So the last movie we're going to talk about tonight, I have heard you say is, as we've gushed about some of these movies here, um, I've heard you say that this is your favorite movie of this year, right?
1: This is a top 50 movie of all time for me. Okay.
0: So the last movie we're going to talk about is Mira Nair's Monsoon Wedding. It stars Nasiruddin Shah, Shafali Shah, uh Lilette Dubby, Dub- Dub- and Vasunhara Das. It has a 95% from critics and 87% from audiences. So we talked about Nair uh last episode in 1991 in terms of um mississippi uh, Masala. Masala. and um yeah here she is 10 years later again so you want to tell us a little about the movie and why it's a top 50 movie of all time though? Uh
1: so in scope this is a really small movie and revolves around one family's preparation for the marriage of their daughter Uh, In the days preceding it leading up to the actual wedding day. Generally follows the interactions and exploits of that family um, throughout the couple of days. The daughter is getting married in an arranged marriage to a man that she barely knows whose family is from America. Uh, It's being supported by this rich family friend that's kind of supported the family for years. Um, it involves all these members coming from different countries to gather uh, this wedding planner group uh, led by this kind of sort of flamboyant, sort of boisterous wedding planner kind of feels like he plays sort of loose and fast with the truth a lot as he's helping to set up the the ceremony, which is an elaborate affair with tents and flower garlands and anyway. The young girl is still in love with her ex, who's a television celebrity who's still married to another woman and is making her kind of doubt her decision to get married. Her younger brother is this flamboyant and never specifically called out as being gay, but definitely a young man that's not interested in the same things that his father feels like he should be interested in. He's into cooking and dancing and just being kind of an exuberant personality and there's this plot line of the father wants to send him to boarding school and make him more serious and more you know almost manly and the kid just wants to be as you know himself there's the plot line of the maid of the house is wrongfully accused of stealing jewelry and her and the wedding planner are in love with each other. And it kind of puts a rift in their relationship that gets mended by the end of the movie. And all of this is taking place on the cusp of monsoon season in India. Uh, so half of the movie takes place in pretty heavy downpour. Um, and then the most devastating uh, storyline of the movie, which really hits you. I, my, I've i seen this movie probably five times now and every single time, like it gets me is Uh, Rhea who's the older cousin of the bride-to-be who was taken in by the family when her father died and was molested by the older family friend at an early age and is now watching him start to groom her younger cousin in the same way Um, and that culminates on the eve of the wedding during the Uh, the night before when they're having this big party to celebrate the wedding where she sees him try and take the girl on a car ride and kind of loses it. And then the father coming to terms with the fact that he needs to protect this woman who's become his daughter over time. And so that's the movie. Um, Again, it just, it takes place in a small period of time, but number one, I don't think there's a performance in this movie that I don't absolutely love. Like I like, Every character in this movie feels real and they have genuine personality and they have, they feel like they've known each other for a long time. Like you don't feel like you're watching actors perform. You feel like you're watching people that genuinely know each other, just kind of interact on film. I love Nair has kind of a, I always use cinema verite, but it's sort of what it feels like the way that she films scenes where sometimes the camera moves past the principals to catch something happening in the background or sort of illustrate the setting in some ways. And she does it where it's not jarring ever. Like it just sort of feels like you're caught up in the rush of this family trying to prepare for this momentous event. I think that it's, a really bold look at some things that when you read about the way that especially women are treated in india i think it's really bold of nair to approach those things like the the older family friend grooming the young girl mm-hmm. and sort of the confrontation of that and um the father confronting him on the day of the wedding and saying you're not welcome here and turning down all the financial support that he's received for all the years from this man, because he needs to stand up for his daughter and just how heartbreaking it is when he's talking to her. And, you know, I don't know how to help you. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know what to do. Like I want to help you and my heart breaks for you, but I have no idea. You know, it's, it's very real and very raw and incredibly heartbreaking when you see it. And then exuberant afterwards, when you see her, admiration and love for this man who's willing to sacrifice so much financially just because he cares about her and sort of her kind of coming around at the end of the movie there's um a beautiful scene where uh, after a record so the bride tells the groom and i apologize that i don't i don't have these names in front of me so i'm just i don't remember all of them the Bride tells the groom that she's had an affair with her ex while they've been engaged, and he gets angry, but he comes to accept it because he tells her that he you know he thinks the marriage will work. he thinks they can be happy. And so during this wedding party, they go up on the roof and they embrace and they kiss. And there's just the way that Nair films that scene. So you have the trees that are kind of over overgrowing the side of this rooftop patio. That are festooned with these lights and she does that in soft focus where their silhouettes are in hard focus like in the foreground and it just sort of it's one of the most beautiful scenes like almost ever in a movie and it's such a simple thing but it's the way that all of that is filmed and the way it comes together it just like it feels magical in the middle of this movie that feels very practical in a lot of ways. And just the colors and the way that she films the rain and all of it. Like, I don't know. I I love this movie fully. I don't think there's, I think it feels like it goes by in like 15 minutes. Like you don't feel like this movie that takes any time at all. Like it's super, you're super engaged the whole time. And it never lets you dwell. It, it just, it just continuously moving you through the events of this family and building your knowledge of them and your familiarity with them so when it pays off pretty much every single storyline within the span of about 15 minutes like you genuinely feel the exuberance i think of this family of these people getting married together and it just it feels great love the music in it um love the dancing I love the marriage of the traditional Indian culture that you see a lot of times in the Bollywood movies with a more modern <clears throat> mindset, you know, of Western culture kind of encroaching into this traditional world. It's just, yeah. Well, I yeah, mean, that, and
0: that's the interesting thing is between last episode with Mississippi Masala And seeing that Indian family in the States, in the South, and how that plays out of those mixing of cultures. Now we're seeing 10 years later, I think it's really interesting with her and how Western culture has started to influence a lot. And you get it really early on with that brilliant scene on the talk show about the the two sides like arguing about sex in movies in the talk show and then you find out that she's been kind of having this affair even though she's engaged and even before that you start seeing it in the language itself and how Hindi is moving into English between the different generations and it's it's a really fascinating look at a modern Indian family 20 years ago and it I've always appreciated because you had me watch this movie again it's like when you were having me watching a lot of movies like 15 years ago or so or right around that period and yeah I I remember it's like I was like I know I watched this and I remember I liked it and I started watching it and I only remembered certain things from this movie. And I remember as soon as I hit play and I saw like the opening scene, everything came rushing back to me. Like every single element of this movie came rushing back to me. And it was still just as much of a joy to watch this time around. And one of the subplots that I don't see get mentioned a lot that I love in this movie when I read the reviews and the critical work on it. Is the PK, the the, the wedding planner, mm-hmm. is that character and his story, um, which I think is brilliantly played by this actor, like kind of character actor in India, um, Vijay Raz. And he's such a weird looking dude, like he's like at that age anyway, if you look at the taste. He's pretty handsome guy, but it's like he's such a weird looking guy at that age who obviously is like torn between what he thinks he's supposed to be to succeed in that world. And what he is, I think, deep down in his internal being, his mind, his heart and how he becomes infatuated with the what is she? I guess like kind of like the housekeeper, the maid. Yeah, She's their maid. And like that in itself, like just that subplot is just so joyous. The kind of and, and it, kind of awkward and embarrassing. It's its own little realistic rom com, like inside of inside of this much larger story of this family. And I love that like little subplot so much. And I love him as an actor and his performance in that of. How awkward he is! How kind of weird he is! Like how he tries to be this Monchismo character that really is kind of, you know, lighthearted and wants to have fun much more than what he's doing. And uh, yeah, I all the all the storylines in this work. It's a really interesting, I think, social, social generational, ethical sexual look into a modern indian family and we don't get that much in this country at all uh, to, to get released over here and um this did have a decent like limited release right i think in this country from what i read so maybe yeah i i didn't
1: see this movie until four or five years
0: after it came out I yeah guess. and i think in the cities i think it had a pretty a pretty decent like limited release and I don't know. It's the kind of stuff we need more of, and we're getting slowly. You know, I mean, Parasite won the damn Oscar for best film right. a couple of years ago, so I mean, we're slowly getting there. But this is the kind of thing that, if like we lived, if 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 the culture that we're starting to get now had existed then, this probably would have been nominated for best picture. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, been a contender. So. Like
1: here here's one of the things that i love the most about this movie too because i keep trying to find ways to express like why i like this movie so much and it's so difficult because when you talk if you just tell the plot of this movie the general plot outline to somebody it feels like i mean it's fucking, fucking father of the bride you know what i mean like sure sure you're basically it's like telling the plot of a hundred other movies but it's everything about it like all that plot just expanded into bringing you in almost as like part of the wedding party into this world it's it's i don't know it's so kinetic and enjoyable and tense and sad and funny and i i don't know like i i love this movie from the opening scene of sha getting pissed off because his marigold um, archway is falling apart. To the last scene of them dancing in the rain, like it, a hundred percent just captures mm-hmm. you the entire time, and it's just, um, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. The Criterion transfer of this movie too is out of this world beautiful. Um, if you have the chance to see this on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection, it's a hundred percent the best way to watch this movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I saw that version of it because I run it through YouTube, so I don't think that was a Criterion version that I watched.
1: (laughs) Sad that it's not on the Criterion. So that's actually one of my biggest complaints from this week's worth of movie is um, Tenenbaums uh, shit. Tenenbaums, fucking Devil's Backbone and this movie are all Criterion. Mm-hmm. and not a single one of them available on the Criterion channel,
0: I don't think. Yeah, no, I, uh, I rented all those movies, yeah.
1: Tenenbaums is available now somewhere. Because that one I just watched for free. No, maybe that's not just-
0: true. Prime, I'm sorry, Tenenbaums is on Prime. It still is, I, th- I believe, right now. That and yeah, so, Aquatic are on Prime.
1: But not on the Criterion channel. So it's right. super annoying to me Then I know that Criterion has the rights to these movies and you go to watch them on their channel and they're not available. But there's just some garbage. Well, that's the
0: way. No, that's the way that I think it's the way the Criterion must structure their deals is they make a deal for the DVD release of that version, but they don't like end up because when they were making those deals for a lot of those movies, I don't think they were thinking about streaming whatsoever. Yeah, but when I watched Devil's Backbone, Mm -hmm. it
1: was the Criterion logo that came up first. Hmm. Where did you watch that at? It was on YouTube.
0: Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I didn't even you didn't pay for it on youtube though you just watched it like found a copy of it on youtube or something right
1: i had to watch it in spanish so gotcha um fancy i mean i'm sorry for speaking another
0: language i guess but um <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i i rented it from youtube and watched it subtitled and um it was not the criterion version uh, of it so yeah, that's interesting. I, 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 like I said, I don't think they like just like all the shit that happened years ago with like rights with DVDs and stuff like that. I don't think that they first saw streaming and so they made the rights for the DVD and then they don't retain the rights. So now they have to go back and end up like making new deals to get those on the Criterion channel. I think
1: it may actually be because it's, it's a recent release for Criterion. So maybe it's more financial for them. Could be they put out um they put out devil's backbone and chronos and something else and got mike McNola, the hellboy guy to mm-hmm. do the um box art for it fucking beautiful box art so mm. if you're listening still or you know you just personally if you want to look it
0: up um look up that box art and it's 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 pretty amazing yeah Bl- blows on hulu spirited away is on hbo max yeah Uh, Ten of at least was on Prime. I believe it's still on Prime. I mean, it was
1: on Prime last week, so I'm sure it's okay.
0: So, probably still there at least for the next couple days. So, and then, um, yeah, Monsoon Wedding and Devil's Backbone were both rentals for me, but apparently, Devil's Backbone, a Criterion version, is free on YouTube. So, if you speak Spanish, if you speak Spanish, yes, right, right. Caveat,
1: you can still get the general flow. I mean, it still looks beautiful.
0: All right. So, yeah, I I, look, I four good lists overall, like to end of the year. Like, I always enjoy the end of the year. And, um,
1: yeah, I really come to look forward to them because it doesn't, I'm not pigeonholed into like one director or concept or, you know, I mean, even the horror list, you generally, because it's horror, you're doing the same thing. But it's sure. um, It's always a really good feeling just to look and say, like, okay, what are the five movies I just want to talk about that are came out this year? So. Yeah. Looking forward to the O2s
0: next year. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't even looked ahead necessarily at the O2s at all just to see like what's out there. But yeah, I got so many lists this year I still have to make. Right.
1: Oh, he's tired right. in here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So besides John Madden dying today, Frank, I just saw Harry Reid died. Um, really? Longtime senator um, from Nevada. At eighty two, so um, yeah. Oh, Harry Reid. You know who yeah. I thought you said? <laughs> Harry, Harry Harry and the Hendersons.
1: No, that's I. I may really wouldn't have been paying attention to if I thought mm-hmm. that. I was thinking Jerry Reed, the Jerry. Um, country singer. I don't even know who who
0: I don't know who Jerry Reed is. You know Jerry Reed. What I don't know this guy. If I don't know him by name, Frank, then I don't. I mean, I probably know his songs by this guy, but. Um,
1: he eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking.
0: Okay, I know eastbound and down. Yeah, okay. Eastbound
1: and down.
0: No, it's Harry Harry Reid, the the senator from Nevada, that was the head of Senate for many years. Um, also died. They're not. I don't think they're saying yet whether it happened from COVID or not. She (laughs) Um, got the
1: gold mine. I got the shaft.
0: But all right, thank you for listening this year, everyone. Um, Thank you for all of our new listeners. Thank you to all of our old listeners. And uh, we hope we can keep putting out content that you want to listen to in 2022. Um, In the meantime, the other news story that I saw is that we are now averaging in the past seven days 250,000 cases per day in the past seven days. So please, if you don't have boosters, get boosters. Please mask up um i don't want any of our listeners because we have uh, such a limited base to get sick and die <laughs> um just so. stay home like i do <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right thank you for listening everyone be safe out there have a good night deuces